Let's pray, and if you've got your Bibles, let's start in back in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, and verse 19. We'll read 19, we'll read 20, uh, and then we'll get into some stuff before we, we move further into chapter 2. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything that you are doing. Father, in us personally, the more conversations I have with the more people who attend and who are members here. Father, you are growing us individually. You are, you are making us want to be better people, called people, uh, armed people. Uh, Father, your word is a sword. And our faith that you have given us is a shield. And we are in battle. Thank you for the awareness that you have given us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the strength that you provide us uh, to be good soldiers, not concerned with the affairs of this world, but only concerned with the directions that you, our master, our general, give to us. But Father, not only are you growing us individually, you're growing us as a church, as a people. And I am thankful, Father, I pray that you would give Uh, Lord, as I tell my staff over and over and over again, we may be the ones that lose our heads. And if so, praise be the name of the Lord. But we believe that we are going to take the city. So, Father, in faith, God, give us the courage that we need, the, the, the wisdom. Your, not the world's wisdom that, that we've been operating in all our lives. The power of the world we've been operating in all of our lives. Lord Jesus, may we see, may we dig into your power and your wisdom, which is true power and true wisdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, just real quick before we read, I do want to make you aware of one thing. You're going to see me kind of split right after service. We have an elder meeting this afternoon after second service. Our builder was going to meet us at that uh, meeting. Very exciting times, Amen. Uh, but now he's got a funeral, so he can't make that one. So he's coming, and we're going to have a... Second meeting, or a first meeting, I guess, in between services that I got to get to quick because we don't have much time, and then we'll have our elder meeting after second service. So, fun day, but all exciting. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians, remember the context. Paul's writing to a church, a church he planted, a church he loves, a church he's thankful for. Because the grace of God is on this church, it's visible on this church, it's growing this church. But there are some issues that need to be addressed. The first issue is there are divisions in the church because people in the church, it's not Christ that's divided. It's the people who are divided because the people are thinking wrongly. They're thinking in the ways of the world, in the weakness of the world, in the power of the world. And there is a contrast between the wisdom and power of God and the wisdom and power of this world. Quoting from Isaiah 29, Paul lets them know and grounds his argumentation in this Old Testament text. I will destroy the wisdom of Of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the philosopher? Who has all the answers? Now, look, there's a lot of good uh, philosophers out there. If you've never heard of Soren Kierkegaard, he's one you should know about. He's a Christian philosopher uh, whose ideas were 
taken and stolen by a guy named Nietzsche. A sword Kierkegaard taught that this world is meaningless. There is no meaning. There is no purpose until you find Christ. And that is when purpose and meaning is infused into your life. And Nietzsche came along uh, behind him and said, no, there's just no meaning and purpose whatsoever. So he's a really fun guy to hang out with. But out of all the, all the Greek philosophers, all the famous philosophers, where is the one who has all the answers? Did Socrates, did Plato, did Aristotle? What philosopher has all the answers? Where is the one who is wise? It's amazing how we can give ourselves to lesser causes and lesser things. We read something and it sounds good to us and we build our lives upon it only to be later disappointed when it fails us or a new philosopher comes along with the other side of whatever coin is being talked about. How many of you have experienced it? All you 90s grunge babies should be like, yeah, I've experienced it. I have totally given in to a thought pattern that has led to nothing good. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Hey, Jewish people that have had the Old Testament, where is the expert in the law? Where is the person who gets it all right? Where is the debater of the age? Where is the ask not what, you, what your country can do for you? But what you can do for your country. Where is that great speech, that great orator? Where is the I have a dream speech of the generation that moves us all together? Paul's saying, where? Where are these things? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Look at Proverbs Chapter 14 and verse 12, it'll be on this one screen. And of course, the day that I make slides. <laughs> I spent like two and a half hours yesterday getting pictures and putting slides together. Awesome. It's, and God laughs. <laughs> Men plan and God laughs. Um, I'll be sorry for all you guys over here. I'm going to be looking this way this morning. I love this verse. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? There is a way. Have you talked to that godless person who is just so certain that their immorality is actually morality and that all the, so I love it when people talk about the societal norms. It's just the societal, I'm fighting against the societal norms. What you're saying is you're fighting against what is normal. Societal norms has a meaning. I know you'll change it now that I said that into a different definition. But there are normal realities in this world. But there's a way that also seems right to a man. But where does the way that seems right to a man end? Where does the wisdom of men get you? Where does the power of men get you? Death. Destruction, some of your versions will say, which is actually, I think, a better translation. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its path leads to destruction. What are we doing here as the church? We come together 
to honor God, to worship God, to make much of Jesus and proclaim his gospel, not only for our edification as the people of God, but in hopes that the sinner will hear and repent of their sin. Because there is also a way that leads to life. And what is the way that leads to life? It is the way of the wisdom of God and the power of God that trumps all earthly wisdom and all earthly power. I want to show you some pictures because one of my bucket list trips, by God's grace, I've got to go to a a lot of places in this world, but none of the places I've ever really wanted to go to. Like, I've been to Bulgaria. (laughs) How many of you Bulgaria is a bucket list? Yeah, me either. But I was asked to speak to a group of church planters there. So I've been to Bulgaria. I've seen the Black Sea from the, the coast of Bulgaria, and that was actually pretty cool. But where I, the bucket list I want to go to, I've never been able to go to. Obviously, I want to go to Jerusalem. Obviously, I, I want to go to England and Scotland and Ireland. It's Braveheart. Lick the blood off the ground that still lays there. <laughs> Kiss the stone under all the stuff. I want to go to Rome. So much history. Now, there's a lot of history in Egypt. There's a lot we know about Egypt. But we know more about Rome. All the the ancient records. We know so much about Rome and so much of that ancient city, that ancient world. Only four world empires ever in the world. Rome's one of them. To walk through, and there is actually a three-mile walk that I want to take through Rome that begins... At the Colosseum, one end of the city. Show that picture of the Colosseum. Look at this, this massive monstrosity from history. And again, sorry to all of you over there, but you guys got great seats today. (laughs) God's favor is kind of dwelling over here. Somebody lived right over here this week. (laughs) The Colosseum, a place of epic size for the ancient world, 10,000 Romans. Now, I know our stadiums today hold vast amounts more of fans and people and of, and of the cheer crowd. But in the ancient world, for 10,000 people to be, gather, to be able to gather in one place to watch gladiators battle against gladiators fighting for their freedom. For gladiators were slaves in that day and age where they could win their freedom by being the very best at killing someone else. It was also in this Colosseum that Christians were fed to hungry, wild Animals as 10,000 Romans cheered and clapped. One end of the city of Rome. And if you walk virtually in a straight line from the Colosseum, you'll come to the Roman Forum. This is the center of not only commerce, this is where the marketplace was. And of course, this is the ruins. There are artist depictions I thought about showing you of what it looked like in those days. But, but this is the ruins of the Forum. This is not only where all the the, the market would be, but this is where when a general came back from a a conquest and they were victorious, this is where the, the processions would occur. This is where people voted for uh, those to hold public office. 
This is where the great speeches of Rome would happen. This is where, this is the public square of a world empire. If there was a criminal trial, old Murdoch would have been tried right here in public in the ancient world. And so you won't go from the Colosseum to the, ro- to the public square where all the important stuff happened. And if you keep walking, again, it's just a three-mile trek. If you keep walking, you'll come along to uh, the, the uh, what's it called, the Centro Storico. This is the, the urban development. This is where the people lived. This is where the people played. This is where uh, the people uh, would eat with other families in their homes. And also at Centro Storico, the city center, if you will, you also have all of your pagan temples. It's where the people worshipped. Most of those pagan temples today have been turned into Christian church or, or their ancient Christian churches. There's also the, the Pantheon is here. This is where the Italian royalty from old is buried, including the great master Raphael is buried in the Pantheon here in Centro Storico. And if you don't remember which one Raphael is, he's the one that had the twin sigh as his weapons. <laughs> I'm glad you guys got that. I was, I was thinking, people don't even know what a sigh is. That's gonna be, that joke's going to bomb. But you guys have got it, TMNT fans. A lot, a lot of cool stuff there. A lot of history. Uh, the Trevi Fountain is there. If you, don't, uh, if you can't go to Rome, maybe you can go to Epcot. There's a duplicate of the Trevi Fountain <laughs> there at Epcot. <laughs> it's not as good, but it, it is what it is. A lot of good history here. Now watch this, watch this. Colosseum, public square of Rome, city center. And if you keep walking, you'll head up on a bridge over the Tiber River. And you'll come to St. Peter's Square. Show St. Peter's Square really quick. You've seen this in movies. If you've watched the the second Da Vinci Code, there's all kinds of uh, cool movies that are filmed here. But you guys know this is the entrance to the Vatican. And right on the other end of St. Peter's Square, you'll come to St. Peter's Basilica. And within St. Peter's Basilica, you end this three-mile tour at a sculpture by the master Michelangelo, which he's the one with the nunchucks. <laughs> Michelangelo sculpted this. It's called the Madonna della Pieta, or the La Pieta, informally in Rome. You start at the Colosseum and you end at a sculpture of Mary holding the crucified Christ. And it is in this walk, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God truly come into shocking focus. The power of God versus the power of man. We start at a Colosseum where Christians are murdered. And we end at a dead Savior in the arms of his mother. And here's the beautiful thing. Watch this. Uh, Go to 1 Corinthians. Let's read again verses 27 and 28. 
But God shows what is foolish in the world. I told you last week, underline it, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Second time, God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. When Jesus entered into the world, the Colosseum was full. Rome was it. And Jesus dies in our place for our sin. His mother held his dead body. It's why his mother also worshipped him as God when she saw him in resurrection power and glory. How many moms up here? You love that baby, but you don't worship that baby as God, do you? No, the baby poops for 10 people. (laughs) But something happened in Mary when that dead son lived again. Jesus' brothers worshiped him as God. How many of you have brothers? You give them noogies and you give them wedgies, but you don't worship them as God. And this God who died on a Roman cross in the wisdom of God, Rome had no fear at all of killing this Jesus. They're in control. And Jesus, after rising, ascends into heaven and leads, he leaves 12 guys in charge. Mostly guys who have been out on the sea all of their adult lives and even their adolescent lives as their fathers taught them. There's many of you, how many of you want to go out and fish right now? That's all these guys did. They fished for a living. And Jesus leaves these 12 guys in charge with his gospel. And through Caligula, if you know anything about Roman history, the emperors who were ruling and reigning at the birth of the church, Caligula was a freak of nature. Claudius. Nero, who burnt the city down and blamed it on the Christians. Nero To walk in his gardens at night, he would take Christians and set them on fire and hang them. So he would have, the Christians were his nightlights as he walked through his gardens. After him, Domitian, all the power of Rome, all the influence of Rome, all the greatness of Rome dismantled and taken apart by a Jewish carpenter who died and put 12 guys in charge with his gospel. Weakness of God wins. The weakness of God trumps the power of men. And God has chosen to do things this way, to do exactly what Isaiah said, destroy the way. You think you're so great. You think you're so big. Listen, the one Old Testament verse quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament is God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It is the weakness of God that is the true power in the world universe. I want to read you a quote by a guy named H.G. Wells. 
How many of you know his name? H.G. Wells is a historian. He's also an author. He wrote over 50 books, including War of the Worlds and others that you've heard of. He says this, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant dominant figure in all of history. Even non-believing historians and famous people and famous authors have to admit that Jesus changed the world. The, The weakness of God trumped the power of men. The foolishness of God brings down the wisdom of men. Jesus Christ, a Jewish carpenter who lived most of his life not in ministry. 90% of Jesus' life he was a child and a carpenter. His father taught him skills uh, to use the saw and to swing the hammer. And that's what he did until he was 30. Just three years of ministry. Three years of public ministry, Jesus Christ changed everything. And even non-believers who are honest with themselves have to admit it. Now I want to show you a couple slides. Some things I said last week, some things I'm going to say right now. I want to give you some, uh, show the slide with the three books first. Everything I'm going to say in the next few, the next 20 minutes... 20 minutes. Doesn't come from here, becomes. You know, if you want to know why we're in the mess that we're in, in this country, you need to read these books. The one by uh, Dreher, Live Not By Lies. Men in this room, you would love that book. Strange New World by Carl Truman. And then there's a new one to the family, and I, I, I just read this blue book by Joseph Boot, Ruler of Kings. These other two I read last year. But everything that is wrong right now in our country, and all three of these books start at the same place with a guy named Rousseau. We'll talk about him in a second. Now let me show you two more books you need to have in your library. Even if you don't read them, have them in your library so you can look smart. <laughs> What If Jesus Had Never Been Born by Dr. James Kennedy. Fabulous book. You need to understand the difference Jesus has made in this world. You just need to understand how the foolishness of God trumped the wisdom of uh, men. How the weakness of God overpowered the power of men. What if Jesus had never been born? And this one is especially important. A guy named Rodney Stark, also a historian. He wrote this book in 2005. It was a New York time. How many of you remember 2005? It's, it's just about the time where a lot of the foolishness that we see today are. I mean, drag queen story hour. Somebody would have been laughed off a stage if they mentioned that in 2005. But there are some things that were happening at the time. He decided to write this book because he saw the conversation shifting and shifting quick. So he wrote The Victory of Reason. It was a New York Times bestseller in 2005. Rodney Stark can't get a publishing deal today.
Let's read verse 20 again. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Let me tell you a little bit about the difference that Jesus has made in the world. And let's begin simply with Jesus and children, if you'll put that slide up. And this one is special to me, and it should be special to you. It just happens to be on a day where we dedicate children to the Lord that I get to preach this sermon. Because God is at work, and he is putting things together, and he is teaching, and he's training his people. Did you know in the pagan world... Children had almost no value at all. There were very few. Every now and again, you could find some. Some that wanted to pass things on to their children. Someone who, some who wanted their children to take over for them. But in the large populace existing in the ancient world and its pagan roots, children were of little to no value. In the ancient world, only half the children born lived to see the age of eight. Now, some of this was for normal reasons, the lack of food, disease, rampant in the ancient world. But unfortunately, in pagan cultures that these children were born, they were discarded. Parents would even sell their babies to others, sell them into slavery for a few silver coins. And at the very worst... Hundreds of thousands of children in the days of Jesus were sacrificed to pagan gods, killed by their own parents. And we think, what a terrible time for children in the world. Fast forward today, a billion children were murdered by their parents in the 20th century alone. One billion. Wrap your head around that number. Jesus came, Jesus changed everything. He changed things you've never even thought about. Some of the blessings that we have in the modern world come directly from Jesus. Here's how Jesus changed parents' relationship and society's relationship with children. Jesus came as a child, therefore honoring children and childhood. Think about it. Here's what blows people's mind when they really dig into Christianity. Because every other religion who has a figurehead God it's, it is, is a God of lightning bolts. Is a God that resembles the power of men. Only the Christian God, only Yahweh of the Old Testament, clearly seen through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is a God who shows humility. He doesn't come to this earth with a long white beard and a bag of lightning bolts. He's not Gandalf. He comes as a baby, completely dependent upon his mother and his adoptive father to raise him and to nurture him and to train him to take care of him, to protect him, to provide for him. God honors children by coming into the world as a child. And he doesn't just come into the world as a child. Look what he did. This is just from the gospel of Matthew alone. And the next slide I have for you, I kind of take from everywhere. This is just from Matthew. 
Can you read that? Is that too small? I figured it'd be too small yesterday, but there it is anyway. (laughs) Jesus healed children. Jesus said God imparts wisdom to children. Jesus taught children. Jesus cast demons out of tormented children. Jesus said heaven was made for children. Jesus said God would punish anyone who harmed a child. Some of you you fighting the fight at KSU, remember these verses. God said he would punish anyone who harmed a child. Jesus laid his hands on children and prayed for them. Jesus invited children to himself. Jesus was worshipped by children. From the mouth of babes come real praise, amen? Jesus told us to come to him like we were children. The faith of a child. Jesus Creates children. Jesus loves children. Jesus is fortunate. And guess what happened? In history, there was a place in Jerusalem where Jesus was teaching in Matthew. The place for hell, Gehenna, actually comes from the city dump there in Jerusalem. It was this huge, big trash pile where the fire dieth not. Trash was constantly burning. When people would have children, they didn't want the child. They would take the child and they would just throw it into the dump. Because of the teaching of Jesus, as the church began to grow, Christians would go to the dump and they would find the children that had been discarded and they would take the children and they would bring the children home. And the orphanages are a Christian idea. Foster care, even though the government ruined it, it's a Christian idea. God loves children. Children are important to God. So we take care of children, even those children who are not our own, but who have been discarded by their parents. Their life has value. Their life has meaning. They are human beings and should be treated with dignity. God loves the children and culture has been changed and transformed through the teaching of Jesus and the obedience of the church in the teachings of Jesus until the 20th century. Abortions happened in back rooms before. People who have wanted to get rid of babies seem to always be able to find a way. But today in our culture, we have returned to our, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world in all of our technological advancement? In all of our modern society, we're so smart. We have everything at our fingertips. We're actually moving toward not progression, but regression. We're going back to pagan roots as we sacrifice our children on the altars of convenience. Not the people of Christ. Not by the teaching of Christ. But by the rebellion that is in the heart of man. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. It is in the worst reflection of humanity that we murder our own children. And we call it health care. 
It's not health care. It's murder. There's no way around it. Even doctors who performed war. I saw this one thing where, you know, this group went into this place and cornered this doctor. And the doctor said, all right, all right, all right, I get it. Yes, it's murder. He was just tired of the conversation. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Only Jesus can change and bring us from the pagan roots of the wisdom of men into the wisdom of God. This is why we humble ourselves and submit to what he says, not do whatever it is we feel like doing in the moment. We are becoming, in this modern, technologically advanced society, we're becoming more like the animal kingdom. It's like, it's like society's become like animals on a farm. But it's not just Jesus and children. Let's look at Jesus and women. In the ancient pagan world, most women didn't have, they were like children in many, many ways. They had no right unto themselves. They, they were property. They belonged in part of a, a, a transaction and a dowry payment. They belonged to a husband. Did you know in Indian culture there was a ceremony called the sati? Where if a man died, his wife was burned alive with him on his funeral pyre. Because she didn't have any right to live apart from her husband. This was the plight of women in the pagan ancient world. Jesus came along and he changed that. Look what Jesus does. Jesus honored women by violating the social taboos. By the way, he violated the social taboos without sinning. Jesus honored women of his day. He spoke publicly to the Samaritan woman and the widow of Nain, which was a big no-no, especially with a Samaritan. They were called the dogs by the Jews. They were the half-breeds. You don't talk to a, a, a Samaritan. The Jews would go around Samaria to get to Galilee. They wouldn't even walk through it. Jesus just walks right through Samaria, sees a woman who shouldn't be at the well because it's not the time for the women to be at the well. And that's the reason this woman's at the well. Because she's had more husbands than Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, I'm glad some of you remember who she is. We're kind of a young church. Jesus just walks right up to her. And it freaks the woman out. If you read uh, John 4, it freaks her out. She's like, you're not supposed to be talking to me. What's going on? A rabbi talking to a Samaritan woman? Jesus honors women. Jesus healed and cast demons out of women. Jesus used women as examples of exemplary faith. I almost changed that because an example of exemplary just didn't seem right to me. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He uses these women who have exemplary faith in God as examples in his teaching to men. Jesus taught women theology. Jesus allowed himself to be anointed for burial by a woman. Not only a woman, but the Bible says a sinful woman. Remember all the other people. As Mary comes in with her hair and, and breaks open the ointment and begins to wash his feet with her tears. All the important people around the table said, if he knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't let her touch him. But Jesus knew exactly, and Jesus knew exactly the worship that she was performing 
was preparing him and anointing him for his death and burial. Jesus had two close friends who were women whom he loved like sisters. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And Jesus allowed women to be the first in experiencing his resurrection. And they were actually the first evangelists as they left the empty tomb to go back and tell the apostles, he's not there. His body's not there. His clothes are there. There was an angel there. He's not there. He's risen. They were the first ones that got to to communicate the message of Jesus' resurrection to the rest of the apostles. And Rodney Stark said this. This was in uh, 2003 in Newsweek magazine. Jesus gave women greater status and influence within the church, but also more protection as wives and mothers, which has been translated to most modern cultures. Now, are we doing any better leaving Jesus' word today? As the feminists are on there, what, what have the feminists done for women? It was the church that was behind women's suffrage, it was the church following the teachings of Jesus that wanted women to have the right to vote. What have the feminists done for women? All the feminists have done is taught women that they shouldn't love their babies, they shouldn't want to be a mom, that they should want to be like a man. They should look like men, talk like men, dress like men. I can't wait to get to 1 Corinthians 11 where I get to talk about how men should be. Men should look like men. Preaching to the choir here at Four Points. Should talk like men. Should dress like men. Why is it every feminist is a lesbian tiger? Looks like a man. And what good have they done, ladies? Here's what they've done to an entire generation of women. They've made them whores and they've made them murderers. And if you're mad that I said the word whore, it's a Bible word, so get over it. I'm reading Hosea right now with my kids. And after like chapter three, Abby looked at me. She's my oldest daughter with like saucer big eyes. She's like, I can't believe how many times this book says whore. (laughs) It's the Bible. It was Jesus that gave the world a proper perspective. Now the Jews had all always had it, but the rest of the world was pagan. Jews had always respected their women. The rest of the world did not. And through the teaching of Jesus, it became socially acceptable to treat women with honor and the dignity and respect that they deserve. Jesus did that. Feminism didn't do that. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Do you want to look like a man, ladies? Be a feminist. If you want to embrace whom God has made you and in the femininity, which is beautiful in the sight and eyes of God and is a pleasure to him, follow the ways of God. Look, I got three minutes. Jesus and slavery, that's an important one. Do you know half the people in the Roman Empire were slaves? Do you know three-fourths of the people in the days of Jesus in Greece were slaves? Slavery is a world problem. It's a human problem. It's affected every continent. It's affected every people throughout history. And it was unchallenged through history until what? Until God's people said, enough. 
This is wrong, and we're not going to do it anymore. It was William Wilberforce, a Christian man in England who fought for decades in the courts, in the, in the House of Lords, to end slavery and the slave trade. And by God's grace, this Christian man defeated politically in victory slavery in Europe. We had to fight a bloody war as brother against brother here. But it was defeated. Christians led that charge from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus and America. Jesus and science. Jesus and economics. Jesus and medicine. Did you know there was no hospitals in the ancient world? The closest thing you could get was a, a, an infirmary for wounded soldiers that come in from battle or for gladiators because people were protecting their investments. There was no health care. The council that I see in 325 said everywhere a church is established, a hospital should be established as well. The hospital. Jesus was the great physician. When people are sick and dying, they just lay on the streets and die and be carried off. You've all seen Monty Python, right? Bring out your dead. That's the way the ancient world was. But it was God's people that began caring for them. Now these conglomerates, and many of you work for Wellstar, so I won't talk much about them. But, but now that's a bunch of money-hungry, business-oriented. It's not even about health care anymore. Where did, where did universal health care come from? It came from Christians who wanted to follow the commands of Jesus. Education! Nearly every one of the 123 schools in this country began as centers to teach Christian piety. Did you know for 200, the Puritans started the common school up in northern New England. And it went so well. They were all Christian. They were all private. The government said, this is a good thing. These kids are smart kids. All they read was the Bible. They learned to write the Bible. They learned, to, they learned everything from Scripture. And the government gets involved and everything gets way better. For 217 years, education, even if it was funded by tax dollars, was Christian. Are we doing better leaving? Because right, what do the progressives say? This book's holding us back. What's it holding us back from? Girls getting raped by boys who think they uh, should go into the girls' dressing room? Metal detectors at the doors? Kids shooting up kids. Wisdom of man. We're living in it. We don't need more wisdom from men. We need revival and a return to what God says. Because the wisdom, the foolishness of God destroys the wisdom of man. Jesus in art. Jesus in charity. Let me read you this quote. This is awesome. Arthur Brooks, in talking about charitable giving, he just knew that the liberal progressives, they were the ones that were funding all this great humanity because they're the ones that care about the environment. They're the ones that care about people, blah, blah, blah. Arthur Brooks says, professor at Syracuse University, religious conservatives donate more money to all sorts of charitable causes regardless of income than their liberal counterparts. These are not the sort of conclusions I ever thought I would reach when I started looking at charitable giving in graduate school 10 years ago. I have to admit, I probably would have hated what I have to say in this book. <laughs> 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read five verses quickly. Because there's a reason Paul says this. Paul knows about the wisdom of man and the power of man. And he's traded everything. Remember, it's all scuba lung to Paul to gain Christ. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I, now, now, Paul's a smart guy. And Paul understood rhetoric. And Paul, man, he's, he's making a, a, an incredible argument right here. But in the motivation of the heart of Paul, he's not coming trying to impress people with his speech. That's what the men of the world do. He's not coming in that kind of wisdom. He's coming in a different wisdom and a different power. And this different wisdom and this different power show the Madonna della Pieta again. This wisdom and this power comes from one place. And this place is enough. The crucified Christ who changed the world. Jesus never wrote a book. But the Library of Congress has 17,000 books about him, written about him. Jesus never wrote one thing down. The only time we see him writing in scriptures, he's drawing something in the sand. We don't know what it was, but it made everybody put down their stones and walk away. <laughs> Jesus is awesome. He never wrote anything, but 17,000 books have been written about him. The only one, the only other person in history that comes close to that, give, give me a guess. We don't have time. Never mind. We're already three minutes late. Shakespeare, who's got less than half of that. Jesus never ran for political office, but more people have chosen him for their leader than any other man who has ever lived. Jesus was never formally educated. He was an apprentice of his father. He couldn't make the cut in the schools of his day, but he has more students than anyone has or ever will have. Jesus is not a therapist, but he has helped more people than all the counselors, therapists, and psychologists combined. Jesus was not an artist, but more art has been commissioned of him than anyone else in the history of the world. Jesus was not a builder, but more buildings have been erected and dedicated in honor of him than any other person who has ever walked this world. Jesus is truly without peer this week. Listen to all the nonsense that is out there. Hear all the stories from the wisdom of man and the power of man and know that you know that you know deep down that Jesus is all in all. And the wisdom and the power of man as strong as the Colosseum was. As strong as Caligula and Claudius and Nero and Domitian were. 
They come down as Christ comes up. God has done it before and he will do it again. And I want to be a part. Let's pray. Father, we are your people. Help us to know it, to see it, to think it. God, show us. Show us in everything this world teaches us how foolish it truly is because ultimately it stands against you and your authority and in the last day, every knee will bow. We love you, Jesus. Amen.